Special thanks to Gabriel Hole, Christopher Lindstrom, and Jackie for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters and helping to make this project possible. The global pandemic has hit our day jobs hard. This is now our full-time jobs. If you want great content and can afford a few extra bucks, consider becoming a Southpaw supporter on Patreon. If you want to show everyone else your solidarity, we now have an online store full of Southpaw swag. You can find links to both our store and our Patreon at southpawpod.com. When it comes to left media, we cannot exist without your support. This is Sam. This is Sapphire. And this is Southpaw. Today on Southpaw, we have Sapphire Sandalo. She's the creator and host of Stories with Sapphire. She's also an animator, storyteller, teacher. She does voiceovers and she goes on TV to talk about scary stuff. So hi, Sapphire. (laughs) Hello. So you've made it. You host things, you got fans, (laughs) you go on TV, you go to conventions. You've made it. No more worries. You're now a millionaire. Oh, I wish. (laughs) Do you ever get that? People think your life is super easy now based on the things you've done? Oh, all the time. Um, It's actually really funny because if you Google my name and net worth, people seem to think that I'm worth like over a million (laughs) dollars. Yeah, it's the funniest thing. I forget how I found it. But when I found it, I was like, where are they getting these numbers from? Um, But I think they're basing it on like the value of the YouTube channel I worked for. I think that's where they're getting it from. But yeah, um, that's actually one thing that people always misunderstand about YouTube creators. Like for the most part, a lot of people who are podcasters or uh, YouTube creators, they do work for themselves. They did like start something on their own and built a business out of it. But in the case of the show that I used to work on, which is something scary for a channel called Snarled, um, that was run by a company that was owned by a company. All of the content I made for them was owned by them. Like I worked for a company. I wasn't my own thing. So when people would message me like, hey, you know, I see that you're doing your own thing. That's really cool. But I'd always feel like I had to explain myself like I am not really working for myself like you think I am. I'm actually working for a company. But that is no longer the case. That is why I quit back in October and I feel great. <laughs> I think that's kind of a wake up moment a lot of us have who live in Los Angeles, right? Where yeah. maybe you see a comedian on TV and you're like, oh, shit. Look at this comedian. They're so funny. They're on TV. And then you go to a restaurant and then they're serving you and you're like, oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. Um, But I think that uh, there used to be such a I don't know if I don't know if stigma is the right word, but where people would be like, oh, you haven't made it because you're still doing these side jobs. But I think now people are much more accepting of it. You know, they're like, you know, you got to you got to pay the bills somehow, you know, like, and this industry is so fickle and strange. And so, you know, you might like, you, yeah, you might have, you know, this really cool TV role, and then you won't be employed for months. You know, it's all very unpredictable. Yeah. So out of even people who appear on TV or who are recognizable because they're well known on online media, maybe even there, it might be just 0.1% that does really well. Oh, yeah, for sure. So then if it isn't like that, like our stereotype, what is your life like right now? <laughs> um, so I have three main things that I'm doing right now. Uh, the first one is my new podcast. So, so Stories with Sapphire. Um, it's it's weird calling it a job because I technically make no money off of it yet, but one day I will. Um, so that's the one thing that I'm focusing on. And then I am also a part-time professor at Loyola Marymount University. Um, that's like one day a week. So it's like super easy. And then I am also a paranormal expert on a TV show called Paranormal Caught on Camera. And as far as hosting, right? Mm -hmm. It's you. It's just your voice. 
Did you have background in that first where you had some training or did you just find that you were naturally good at speaking into a microphone by yourself? Oh, well, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was actually in speech and debate in high school. And I think that really shaped uh, well, I was in speech and debate and musical theater. Um, I've always had a performance background, and I think that really helped me um, with what I do now. So for speech and debate, you did more of the speech part or the debate part? Oh, I did not do debate. That was for like the smarter people. <laughs> <laughs> no, because I was going to say, if you did debate, I don't think that would help you because they're just like speed talking, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, I can't keep up. <laughs> yeah. Like to be high level, you have to be able to say so many words per minute. Mm -hmm. And make sense. (laughs) Yeah. So then how did you get into storytelling and art? So I've always been a visual artist. I've been drawing ever since I was a kid. Um, And I always like even when I was little, I was I was always making up stories. Um, You know, every kid does this. You make believe you play you know, with your dolls and you make up stories and stuff. But I feel like I took it to another level. Um, I I always did like played out these really tragic stories with like my (laughs) stuffed animals, like to the point where I would make myself cry. (laughs) I was a weirdo. Uh, But that's sort of like how I've always been. Just I love when stories move me so deeply. Um, And so I when it was time for me to go to college and figure out, you know, what do I want to do with my life? Uh, I decided to major in animation because I felt like that combined everything that I loved. Like I love filmmaking and visual art and storytelling and animation kind of encompasses all of that. Um, And I've always loved ghost stories. So when I had the opportunity to pitch something scary to Snarled, I combined those things and that's where it happened. (laughs) So was getting into YouTubing more of like you're going to college or you graduated college and you needed a job and that was an opportunity that appeared or you were thinking about doing something else and then you were like, oh, I'll do this in the meantime. Um, And then it just kind of took off. You know, I, hmm, let me think. After I graduated, it actually took me three years before I got my first job in the animation industry. Um, But before that happened, I actually had my very first YouTube gig with Frederator, which is this animation production company. And I was doing this weekly animation news show for them. And that sort of happened because I, at the time, I was looking for like musicals to audition for. I was just really into like, I want to be performing something. I don't know what that is. And then I found this uh, casting call for Frederator and I recognized the name because they made Fairly Odd Parents and a bunch of stuff that I really liked. So I was like, oh, this is an animation company looking for someone to talk about animation. I can do that. And so I got that gig and that was my first YouTube thing. So that was definitely a side thing for sure. And then I just kept doing YouTube on the side. So then you entering YouTube was more like a combination of worlds combining where your love of performance, your love of animation and storytelling, and then they came together. Yeah, definitely. Um, I never thought that it would become the thing that I do full time, but it has turned out that way, which I think is really cool. And I think that um, just like being a creator in the world that we are right now, um, it's so much easier to make that your like full-time thing, which I think is really cool. <laughs> Do you think it's easier now or it was easier back then? Um, easier and more difficult in different ways. The market is definitely a lot more saturated now, but I think that's sort of going to force people to get creative with what they do. You know, like you're not going to do something that's just derivative of something else. You're going to be like, okay, how do I stand out? Because there is so much. Um, But the cool thing about the internet is that there is rule, there's room for everybody. Yeah. In their early days, or even when you were first starting and I became aware of your projects, right? I think YouTube, even those types of shows that were professionally produced, they were a lot less, I would say, sophisticated than they are now. Mm. Now it just seems so much better produced. Even the independent content where it's just one person doing it is so much better produced now. Yeah. It's so much easier to make something that polished now than it was back then, but it's Mm -hmm. much more crowded now. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, just the accessibility we have to technology. People didn't have high def smartphones, you know, (laughs) 10 years ago. So the quality has just gone up. But because of that, uh, there is also more competition to like who's going to be the best. But at the same time, I also do feel like there is room for kind of less quality stuff 
it, like uh, production quality as long as the content itself is good. And I feel like TikTok is such a good example of that. Like people don't care that it's just a like a shitty video in someone's living room. If it makes them laugh, then, you know, they like it. <laughs> Even with TikTok, though, I do notice that maybe the quality as far as like the quality of the picture or the camera they're using might not be that great. But somehow people, especially young people growing up in the YouTube social media, Instagram, TikTok era are figuring out more like on their own directing or understanding more about content or pacing or framing. They don't even know that they know this stuff, but somewhere along the line, it seems like they've picked it up. Yeah, I think that's really cool. A lot of industries are becoming demystified because we're now gaining more accessibility to these types of technologies. Like not everyone could have been a director or an animator 50 years ago, but now everyone can't. Well, I mean, like assuming that you can't afford the equipment and the necessary tools, but like it's not as it doesn't seem as far out there as it used to. Yeah. And now there's like tutorials about how to make a podcast mm -hmm. that sounds like NPR style, how to add music, when to use it and whatever. And it's all out there for free, which wasn't there in the early days. So I think maybe even with the good show creators, like professional ones like NPR, they were like, there's a lot of bad stuff. <laughs> Let us help you out a little <laughs> bit. Here's what we're doing. So it doesn't sound that bad. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I, I think what's also so great about just the internet, like the community of creators on the internet is that we all want all content to be good. Like no one wants people to make bad stuff. And so people put out tutorials for free and helpful tips and stuff, you know, because we it benefits everybody if everybody's doing the best that they can do. Yeah, yeah. I think if they make the medium look bad, we all look bad, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So then we have a through line, right, from you in the early days of YouTube for yourself and creating stuff, working for other people, to finally now you have evolved to creating your own show called Stories with Sapphire, which you put your name in it so that somebody can't take it from you now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so can you tell the audience what it's about? Absolutely. So... Uh, Stories with Sapphire, the tagline, I guess, is that I share a multicultural perspective on the supernatural through stories, interviews, and poems. Um, so I, I, I love scary stories, and I love supernatural stories, and I feel like they unite all cultures in a way, um, you know, like every culture has their own folklore and ghost stories and stuff like that, and I love it. When I left Something Scary, I was trying to come up with something that still incorporated my love for scary stories, but added something new to it. And after a lot of thinking, I was like, okay, what, what interests me? Because I kind of felt really burnt out on ghost stories and trying to be scary. Like, I honestly felt like nothing scared me anymore. <laughs> By the time that I quit something scary, I, like, I just felt like I was regurgitating the same stuff. And I was just like, I got, I could feel myself just not making good stuff anymore. So I was like, okay, I need a break. I need to just like think about this. Um, and so with this new show, I do still share scary stories, but I do tend to I want to lean more towards nonfiction stuff. So that involves me interviewing people who have had real experiences and also delving into more topics like spirituality, theories about reality, stuff like that. Because um, the stuff that really interests me is are the things that make you think about the reality you live in in a different way, whatever that means. So it's much more open ended than before. Yeah, I feel like before uh, it was very fiction based. Well, OK, spoiler alert. It's not really spoiler, but um, people would send in their own stories to something scary, but we would heavily, heavily edit them to the point where it's barely like the original story. <laughs> and it was, all, you know, very clearly fictional. And so to me. I, I'm like, no, oh, I kind of want to go back to because if you look at the very early episodes of Something Scary, it was very much like I was talking to my friends and my family members and I tried to stay true to their story as much as possible because to me, that's what makes it interesting is like this real person experienced this real thing. And it doesn't matter if you believe that it happened or not, like the experience that they had was real, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's that's sort of what I'm trying to like get more into now. Well, even the differences in the title, you have something scary and stories with Sapphire. So mm -hmm. in the new name is stories. So 
it doesn't necessarily have to be scary every time? Yeah, uh, there's I, I did that intentionally because I didn't want to pigeonhole myself and get burnt out again. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but everything it, the the common thread through all of the things that I talk about is supernatural stuff and spirituality. So it's almost like the old Twilight Zones where not every episode was scary, but it made you think. Yeah, <laughs> like that. <laughs> so do you think you could share with us maybe three of your favorite stories? I would love to. Um, so I know this this first one's kind of a cop-out because I'm not actually going to share it. I'm just going to refer you to an episode of my podcast. So um, I interviewed this guy named Mark Allen Miller. He used to work for Clive Barker's production company. And he, if you don't know who Clive Barker is, he's like a very prolific horror writer. Um, and his mansion that he lives in is insanely haunted. And so Mark came on my show and shared an experience with me. He came over to my house told it to me for the first time while we were recording. And I literally screamed when he told me like, <laughs> it and that never happens. And so after he told this story, I was I couldn't stop thinking about it for days. And I haven't had that feeling in such a long time. And so it has become one of my new favorite stories. And I don't want to share it here only because he tells it so well on my podcast. So if you want to listen to it, uh, it's the fifth episode, number five in Stories with Sapphire. And what's the title (laughs) of that episode? It's called Not of This World. That makes sense why you don't want to share it because it was his story. He probably says it a lot better. <laughs> oh, he tells it so well. And y- you have to hear like the whole, uh, it's, it's so good. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, but there, so I have uh, two other stories that I can tell you. Um, so for me, the types of stories that tend to stick out in my mind the most are the ones where I remember where I was when I first heard them. And I remember how I felt when I first heard them. So this story was told to me by my aunt who told it to me when, let me think, it was a couple Christmases ago. And I remember that we were all spending Christmas inside of my grandpa's hospital room. So it was like me and all my cousins and a couple of my aunts and uncles. And I don't remember why the topic turned to this, but she started telling us about these supernatural experiences that she had. And I'm actually going to be sharing some more of her stories on uh, future episodes of my podcast. But this story is one that I told on Something Scary. And it's one of my favorites because it's the first time that I had heard of this Filipino creature called the Duende. So, But um, why were you all at the hospital? Oh, um, my grandpa couldn't spend Christmas outside of the hospital. So we spent Christmas in the hospital room with him. Oh, he was sick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think he was like sleeping during this time. And I was like, oh, my God, we're going (laughs) to wake him up. Um, So he didn't even get to enjoy the story. (laughs) Yeah. Well, my grandpa, he's the one who inspired everything that I do. He's the one who had all these really cool stories when I was younger. Um, I actually have recorded uh, tapes of him playing in the first episode of Stories with Sapphire, where he's sharing stories that... um, he experienced when he was a younger man in the Philippines. Um, That actually might have been why we got on that topic. I think we were talking about grandpa's stuff. Mm -hmm. So um, my aunt was telling us that she had a niece. This is probably when she was like in her 20s or something. So my aunt was in the Philippines and she had a niece that she would be taking care of and her niece was in high school and so it was the middle of the day and then my aunt randomly gets this call from her niece's high school and they sound really scared and freaked out and they're like you need to come to the school right now and she was like uh is everything okay like you're kind of scaring me and they said that her niece was acting really weird and they wouldn't really explain everything over the phone they just said she had to get over to the school So my aunt goes over to the school, goes over to the principal's office, and her niece is sitting in the chair, just totally out of it, just sitting there, like her gaze is sort of empty. She sort of looks just off. And they're like, we can't, like, we we don't know what's wrong with her. Every time we talk to her, she doesn't respond. And so they called the sheriff of the county, and he came over. 
and was talking to her and tried to get her to talk. And um, he kind of had this inkling that maybe she was possessed by something. That was sort of his intuition. He was like, she, if she's acting this way, maybe that's what the case is. And so he's like, maybe I can try to talk to whatever is possessing her. And so he went up to her and said, what are you doing to this girl? Why are you here? And then the girl responded, and this is how my aunt described it. She said she responded in a cold, deep voice that wasn't hers. And she said that her niece opened her mouth and said, she stepped on my house. She hurt my children. And they were all like, what does that mean? (laughs) Um, Like, whose house was this and so the sheriff was like wait that doesn't make any sense where is your house and then the girl responded with outside the school so in the philippines there is a superstition where if you step on an anthill or any sort of mound on the ground uh, you need to apologize because that's where the duende live so duende are these spirits that live in nature and They are invisible to people for the most part, but if they like you, they'll show themselves to you. And if you leave them alone, they leave you alone. But if you mess with their house, if you mess with their space, then they'll give you bad luck. And sometimes in the worst cases, they'll give you, oh, they'll kill you. Um, But in this case, it seemed that they had possessed the body of my aunt's niece. And so they had a feeling, okay, maybe this is the work of a duende because they went outside the school and they saw all of these anthills and they figured that maybe my aunt's niece had accidentally stepped on one and didn't know that she was supposed to apologize and so it inhabited her body. So the sheriff turns to my aunt's niece and asks, can you forgive her because she's just a kid like she she didn't know that she was supposed to, you know, be more careful. Like is there anything that we can do to make this right? And so the niece responds in that same deep voice, bring bananas, oranges, and salt to my house, which sounds ridiculous, (laughs) but um, part of, uh, this is actually part of a lot of folklore where um, if you upset spirits, you're supposed to bring an offering of fruit, vegetables, um, anything like that. And so they go out, they buy these things and they spread it around the anthills. And when they go back to the office to check on her, she's totally back to normal. And she's just, she has no idea about what happened. And they're like, what just happened? (laughs) And she had no recollection of anything. And that's it. (laughs) And I remember being in the hospital, my aunt telling us that. And I was just like, what? (laughs) And my aunt is a sane person. Like, she's not the type of person to just make shit up. So I was just staring at her. I was just like, what? You can't be serious. And she was like, no, that really happened. You've heard a lot of stories. Have you found that there's something uniform then in a lot of them where not just in the Philippines, but in other cultures as well, when you upset a spirit that traditionally you're supposed to offer up something? Yes. So nature spirits, spirits that live in the trees or in the ground, those are really common in folklore and specifically indigenous folklore because it's a reminder to be respectful of nature. You know, like maybe that like that's probably why it began. But I think that there might be some truth in it, too, that, you know, um, well, the indigenous Philippines, they believed in animate, they practiced animism where you believe that there are spirits in everything. And so when you upset any uh, spirits, you're supposed to ask for forgiveness or give some sort of offering to show, you know, that you apologize and that everything is fine. (laughs) So having told scary stories for so long, it's not just that you become a library of scary stories. It sounds like you've also become a folklorist where you understand Mm -hmm. patterns and the history. Do you feel like doing this has also given you a new respect or just a respect period of indigenous cultures and traditional knowledge? Oh, 100%. Um, I when I was younger, I didn't, I had zero interest in learning about Filipino culture. I was very much like, I don't want to be a brown person. Mm. I want to be 
I want to be one of the, the I want to look like my classmates, mm. basically. Um, and so it, it was a long journey to get to where I am now, where now I'm obsessed with learning about the culture and the history and understanding my own colonial mentality that I had for years and didn't even know the terminology for that. Um, and so I'm sort of trying to like undo all of that. And in this past year alone, I've done a lot of research on the like monsters in the Philippines and also just what the pre-colonial Philippines was like. And um, when you learn about the history of what, I mean, specifically the Philippines went through, it's like 500 years of so much of conflict and just fighting to exist and having our culture almost nearly wiped out. It really just, it, to me, it's no wonder why we have the most in my opinion, the scariest folklore and stories because they experience so much shit. So do you feel like part of what you're doing is trying to preserve these stories before they get lost? Yeah, I like to think of it that way. Um, it, to me, my podcast feels like oral tradition, like how stories are passed down before they could be recorded or written. And that's sort of why I'm trying to focus more on interviewing real people and their stories that have been passed down through their family. Because um, even if you're not a believer in the paranormal or the supernatural worlds, it still shapes a lot of how we like interact with the world. I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about that answer. <laughs> no, it's true because they've done studies about people who hear voices and talking about schizophrenia or schizophrenic disorder. And here in the US, if you were raised here, you normally hear demonic voices because it's a Christian culture. Mm -hmm. If you were raised in India, you actually hear positive voices. You hear river spirits or sprites or something like that because that's their culture. I'm not saying that's every part of India because it's huge, but there's been different studies about how mental health sublimates based around the culture. Mm. So to your point, these things do affect us. It becomes real because it shapes our reality. So even when we do have something that could be mental health or it's just something where we try to figure out something that we can't explain, that's where culture can also come in. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You mentioned something interesting, which is about what people call internalized white supremacy, right? Where you want it to be white. Um, was there a moment that happened to you at some point that kind of not changed you overnight, but got the ball rolling in wanting to decolonize yourself? Or was it just very, very gradual? I think it might have been more of a gradual thing. I don't know if there was an exact moment where something switched. Maybe there was, and I'm not remembering right now. But um, yeah, I feel like it started last year. It might have started as I was doing research for this animated show that I was working on. I wanted to make a show about um, Filipino folklore. And that was like a horror animated show that featured a lot of Filipino monsters and folklore. And so I bought a bunch of books. And as I'm reading about these monsters, it's also giving me glimpses of Filipino history. And then I started reading more and more. And I think that's sort of what like got the ball rolling for me. Mm, that's the power of story, right? Mm -hmm. There's this whole like anthropology about story. The term they use is cultural transference, where it just seems like a story about monsters, or I could be showing you a dance, a traditional dance or a martial art, but really it's just a guise to transfer culture and heritage so that the past keeps staying alive from generation to generation. Yeah. So probably in these stories, even outside of the monsters, there was still the context of when this was happening, what people were like, you're trying to figure out what they must have been thinking at the time, what they were feeling, and that's the culture, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So you have another story for us. Yes. Okay. So like I said earlier, the stories that tend to stick with me are the ones where I remember where I was when I first heard it and the circumstances around it. So this one, I think I had posted something on Facebook. I was sharing my show, Something Scary, and then one of my distant cousins responded like in a comment and said, oh, I don't know if Sapphire wants to hear about the possession. And I was like, yes, I do. <laughs> so I messaged her and um, we kept we tried to schedule a time to talk. And uh, I remember I took a break during lunch at work and then I went to our break room and then we were talking on the phone. And I kid you not, every single time she tried to begin the story 
the call cut out. We'd be talking about a bunch of other stuff, like not related to the story, because we we're like, oh, wait, how are we related again? Blah, blah, blah. And then she's like, OK, here's the story. And then it just cut out. And so I'd like call her. And like sometimes I would call her and she wouldn't hear me. And then she'd call back. And then I she couldn't hear me. It was just like a weird back and forth. Obviously, it could all just be a coincidence. But I just remember this so much because it freaked me out in the moment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, does something not want me to know this story? <laughs> um, so. This also takes place in the Philippines. This was about maybe 30, 40 years ago. Uh, So in a small town, there was a baby born and she was born two months before she was due. So she was really small. And so her parents named her Baby. I don't know actually if it was a nickname or if that was her actual name, since there's a lot of babies in the Philippines, like Baby Uh, people called baby in the Philippines. So it could be a nickname, could be her real name, not entirely sure. So she was really close to her older cousin. Uh, Her older cousin was like maybe a couple, like a handful of years older than her. And so they were really close. They were almost like sisters. And when her older cousin was about seven and baby was about four, baby would always randomly disappear during the day. And then she would come back Um, and her cousin would ask her, hey, where have you been? And baby would respond, I was playing with Sven. And her cousin would ask, who is Sven? And baby would say, oh, he's my friend. And so her cousin just assumed that Sven was this imaginary friend that she invented, you know, thinking it's just this innocent little game. And so her cousin asked, "Okay, what did you guys do today? And Baby said, oh, we went on this flying machine and it had this spinning top and we flew over water and it was really cool. And her cousin was just like, okay, because to her, that didn't mean anything. She didn't know what a flying machine with a spinning top was. Um, And so after that, there was another time when Baby disappeared. But this time she was gone for longer than last time. And when she came back, her cousin was like, where were you this time? And she said, I was with Sven and we wore these clothes that like are specially made for being underwater. And we saw all these fish and her cousin again thought it was just some um, her imagination. And so her cousin didn't really think much of this. She thought baby was just a very imaginative kid. But one day baby and her cousin were walking down the street and There's a lot of balete trees in the Philippines. The balete trees are the ones that are very wide, very tall, and they have a lot of branches dangling. And those are considered to be mystical, magical trees. There's a lot of folklore where that says that that's where a lot of spirits live. And some uh, there's some stories that say like that's where the witches live. So they're kind of creepy trees. And so Baby and her cousin are walking down a street with a lot of these trees and they pass by one of them and Baby points. And she says, look, that's where Sven lives. And her cousin's like, I'm sorry, what? (laughs) And so Baby continues with her story and says, Sven took me up to his house and I saw his parents and there was this snake and it was painting these designs on his plates. That's when her cousin thought, okay, something is wrong. Um, Especially since she mentioned that there was a snake. They're Catholic as most of the Philippines is. And in Catholicism, the snake symbolizes the devil because like the story of the Garden of Eden and the snake was tempting Eve. And so her cousin went to baby's mom, told her about all of these weird things that baby was saying and said, I think something's going on. And so her mom said, oh, I think what this is, is an encanto. So an encanto is a spirit. So similar to the Duende where they're invisible to most, but they show themselves to people that they like. And the thing about encantos is that they they essentially look like white people. Um, and so the fact that it was named Sven is really interesting because that's a very, is that Swedish or something? It's a European name. And so Baby's mom thought, okay, if this Encanto has been spending a lot of time with her, I think we need to do an exorcism on her. So the thing about exorcism is that every time exorcism is in 
Hollywood movies or TV shows, you kind of see the same thing where it's very violent, very extravagant, like over the top, where it's like, oh, you're trying to like get this demon out. But in the Philippines, an exorcism really could just mean you are trying to detach a spirit from somebody. It doesn't have to be this like huge ordeal. So that's what they did with baby. They took her to a priest at the church. He did a little prayer over her. And then that was that. And so they took her home. Baby never disappeared again. And they asked her, where's Sven now? And she had no recollection of Sven. She just completely forgot about him. So they were thinking maybe the ritual worked or maybe baby is just like over this stage of her life. But the timing was just really strange. But here's where it gets super weird is that baby's cousin, uh, when she was much older, so this is like maybe 10 years or 15 years later, like she's a young woman and she moves to the United States and she is flipping through a National Geographic magazine and she, she sees photos of helicopters and scuba divers. And this is the first time that she's seen these things. And then she remembered what Baby said about the flying machine with the spinning top and the clothes that you wear underwater. And it was the first time she made the connection and thought, oh my God, like was Baby actually doing these things with this spirit? Because they lived in a very, very tiny village in the Philippines and they didn't have TV, they didn't have magazines. And so there was no way that Baby could have known about these types of things. So that was the thing that that made her go, whoa. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like this white spirit taught her about urbanization and all these uh, modern contraptions, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Much like the way it happens in the real world. Yeah, exactly. And you know, the thing that I love about um, the Encanto folklore is that I'm pretty sure that it it started after colonization in the Philippines because the story goes that Encantos are these like beautiful light-skinned creatures and they um, like trick you into falling in love with them. And then like when they, when you marry them or something, then they like eat your soul. So it's, (laughs) yeah, it's sort of like a warning, like, hey, beware of white people. (laughs) You know what I love about these stories is that They're spooky, they're creepy, they make you think, they come together, but at the end, it's not like some tragic, horrific ending where it fucks me up for the rest of the day. (laughs) Yeah, they're mostly happy stories. (laughs) Do you try to screen for that or will you occasionally put in a story with an unhappy ending? Oh, that was all of something scary. I was killing kids left and right. (laughs) With this one, you don't have to do that every time. Yeah, no, for for this one, it's definitely more like, actually, yeah, there's a lot more heartwarming stories, I think, on this one. They're still eerie, but the message behind them is usually pretty sweet. Well, even the term eerie, mm-hmm. if you look it up, I think it means like beautiful, but at the same time, creepy. Oh, It's such a weird word, right? So often in these stories, the ghost is ghostly, like spooky, but it's also beautiful at the same time, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's like that weird contrast of when something is beautiful, but kind of off, it's just creepy to us. I think it's almost like, a, what is that thing? A uncanny Valley too, right? Mm-hmm. It is something with us in human nature where it's like beauty, but slightly off. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, we're drawn to that, I think, because it, it just makes us feel something. <laughs> yeah. That's like the new meme, right? I'm feeling something over this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know what it is, but I'm feeling something. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the show, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by joining Team Southpaw on Patreon. By becoming a member, you'll get access to bonus content like exclusive articles, fight previews, bonus episodes, transcripts of fight studies, and access to our private chat group on Discord. But more importantly, you'll help us supplement the cost of the show, the incredible time and energy Sam and I put into making the show, And you'll be giving us some breathing room, not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. So what are some points I should be aware of in being a good storyteller of scary stories? That's a great question. 
So I think specifically if you're telling kids' stories or young adult stories, um, you know, if you're like gathered around a campfire, in my opinion, the best stories are the ones that have this like line that's a twist or um, just like a gasp moment where you go, oh my God. <laughs> um, and usually if you leave that to the very end, uh, like as like a little cliffhanger, and then you kind of just it, it lingers in their head afterwards. Um, those were the stories that I loved as a kid. And if you look at all of the classic urban legends, um, you know, like the, God, what is it called? Like the hook man or whatever, where it's like he looked at his door and there was a hook in it, like that kind of stuff. Um, I think that is what really gets kids. And what I've noticed, um, because my old show had a very young audience, the stories that they loved were the ones that had that like little twist or like cliffhanger ending. <laughs> the young kids like the stories where kids are dying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I know. It's so crazy. Like, I never intended the show to be for children, but I think that's why children were drawn to it because they were like, oh, this isn't pandering. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Ask your parents. <laughs> Do you find then another key is when you're telling a scary story to not try to be scary? Like, you know, sometimes people try to be scarier in the telling of the story. Is it better just to not do that at all? Yeah, I because I think it's it makes it kind of corny. I think this, <laughs> um, you end up overacting, right? <laughs> yeah, and then it's like, oh, okay, we get it. <laughs> um, I'm very much in like the school of thought of um, like natural. I I don't know what what term I'm looking for, like naturalism. I don't know if that's a word, but um, yeah, like all of the podcasts that I do, it's like I, it's not. I don't try to go over the top. I try to go be as like natural, casual as like possible and let the story do the talking. <laughs> as they call in film school, cinema verite. Oh. <laughs> I think that's like the natural filmmaking style, if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, I don't know. Sounds right to me. <laughs> if I'm wrong, I'll edit it out. So. <laughs> <laughs> so since you are an expert on a lot of spooky and scary things, what's your favorite scary movie? followed by what's the scariest movie you've ever seen in case they're two different movies. So what's your favorite scary movie and what's the scariest movie you've ever seen? Hmm. Okay, I will make a disclaimer. <laughs> I was such a scaredy cat as a kid. What? For Yeah, no, 100%. I was a huge scaredy cat. Um, I'm scared of a lot of things today, but like not, not entertainment-wise, more like I'm afraid of heights and spiders and stuff like that. Um, but I, because of that, it took me a really long time to get into like horror pop culture or horror entertainment. Um, so it's funny to me because like people will see the stuff I do and go, oh yeah, you're clearly like a horror person, right? I'm like, ah, I'm actually, I consider myself more into ghost stories and paranormal stuff, which to me is a little bit different. Um, well, it doesn't have to be a horror movie genre per se. What was a movie that scared you? Mm. Like for me, there was uh, this movie that's like PG-13. It's actually made for kids, but it was a Disney movie called Something Wicked This Way Comes, which is also based off a book. Oh, I've never seen that. So it's not super scary, but it scared me at the time. There, <laughs> Actually, I want to tell this like kind of funny story. Um, when I was like... I want to say six-ish. Uh, I had a babysitter named Melody and me and, and my older sister hated her because she tortured us all the time. And there was this one day where we were in the living room and she was like, we're going to watch a movie. And she puts in this movie and the screen pops up and it says dolls. And then there's like a bunch of dolls. And we... I don't remember if that's what made us afraid of dolls or if we were afraid of dolls before that, but we started screaming and we were like, no, take it out, take it out. But then she locked us in that room <laughs> and forced us to watch it. And that scarred me. That scarred, that scarred my sister too. And um, yeah, it's just like a weird memory I have where I was forced to watch this movie. Um, and because of that, I was also terrified of child's play. Dolls is just like one of the things that I, I can't do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember Dolls. It was like an 80s movie. Mm -hmm. there, it was like a stormy night and these people try to like get shelter in this doll factory. And then it turns out the doll factory turns the people into dolls. Oh, that's what it was. <laughs> it was a B movie, right? It was a schlock yeah. movie. Yeah. So that's the other thing. Going to your point about being a scaredy cat, when you're a kid, 
those B scary movies that adults would never be afraid of scare the shit out of kids, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I think it's because it's not as like polished. I think that adds to the creepiness, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, I remember I watched some really low budget movie. It might have been the first Phantasm as a kid, and it was so poorly made that I thought it must have been real. This is just like a documentary. Uh... That it's so bad. <laughs> like it reminded me of home movies. So. This must be somebody's home movie. That made yeah. it even scarier. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, oh, I will, I will say, though, that the last movie that actually gave me nightmares, and I'm sure a lot of people who, like listen are going to be like, really? But um, I don't know if you've seen it, but the Evil Dead remake. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, there was a remake that came out about like, I don't know, five or six years ago. Uh, And there was just a moment where Mia, the possessed girl, is like locked in the dungeon. And then she pushes the dungeon door up just enough that you can see her head. And she starts like sticking her tongue out. And there was just something about that image that made me not be able to sleep that night. And I remember like like the next morning being like, wow, that's the first time that's happened in so long. And I was like amazed. <laughs> uh, I had that moment with um, Insidious. That one's actually pretty creepy. The first one fucked me up for like a year. <laughs> and I think it was because it was the first time where they had creepy shit going on in the background and they didn't try to scare you with it. It's just happening there casually, right? Yeah. They purposely didn't try to give you jump moments and somehow something about that made it even scarier like it's just nonchalant like here they are Mm -hmm. and it's no big deal (laughs) then it's just almost like okay does that mean they're around us all the time and it's no big deal and we don't know Yeah. no yeah no for sure i think i i agree those are always the scariest moments because you really aren't expecting it like i i personally hate it in horror movies where you hear the music swelling and you just know that there's going to be a jump scare coming and i'm like why are you prepping us for it Let it happen. (laughs) So for somebody who's a scaredy cat, then even ghost stories, right, can be scary. So what do you think the appeal is? Because right now it's like leveled up. It's on steroids because there's like (laughs) these terrifying escape rooms that people go to. Oh, I love it. Yeah. There's like super scary movies now that are scarier than ever before. And a lot of people I know who like them will admit they're scared shitless. So Mm -hmm. what is the appeal here? (laughs) So as one of those people who loves that shit, um, I, to me, okay, so while I love escape rooms and I love horror, I'm terrible in horror escape rooms because I'm so scared the whole time. But like, it's so fun. (laughs) It's just so much fun. Um, And I think, okay, here's the thing. I love controlled, scary environments. That's movies, like horror escape rooms, haunted houses, like those ones that you, like Universal Studios, that, that type of stuff. Those are all very controlled environments. So I still feel very safe. I know that nothing could seriously happen to me in these situations the things i am i am really terrified of are bungee jumping or like uh well i'm i I don't know how to swim so i'm terrified of the ocean you know so like um things that can actually kill me those are the things that i am terrified of and i think that a lot of people enjoy these experiences because it is a safe way to get an adrenaline rush If you like adrenaline rushes, I guess. Yes. Yeah. If you are seeking that out. Yes. (laughs) All right. So to switch gears here, you mentioned earlier that you also teach a class at a university. How did you get involved with teaching? It was so random. I have never taught before, so it was very strange. Wait, you went from never teaching to teaching at a university. Yes. (laughs) Which I don't know if that says about the school. (laughs) I went there. So let's say hi, LMU. Um, So you're a YouTuber. So, of course, (laughs) YouTube. All right. You're a professor, basically. Actually, you joke, but like that actually played a part in me getting the job. And I'll explain why. So at the time, I was unemployed. Uh, I am also a freelance animator. So I was looking for work and I was emailing everyone I knew and I emailed emailed an old professor who was the chair of the animation department at the time. And I was like, hey, are you know, do you know of anyone who's hiring? Um, and he emailed me back and said, actually, I have an idea for a class that I think you might be perfect to teach for. Are you interested in that? And I was like, uh, sure. So we talked about it and he explained his idea where um, 
it would be talking more about like the social and cultural issues around animation and entertainment. So not learning actual filmmaking, but more about how we can create and consume content that's more meaningful. Um, and he said the reason why he thought of me was because he had seen all of the past YouTube stuff I had done where I talked about animation. And so he, that's that's why he he thought that I would be good for it. So your class is kind of like your old YouTube show where you watch animation and break it down and discuss it? Um, kind of, except the show that I did before was more about breaking it down technically. Um, and then I had another show that was very, very short-lived. It was called Pop Post, where I talked more about the like social and cultural kind of stuff. Um, and that's the one that he saw and was like, oh, this would be perfect to be a class. So, you know, for an example of uh, how the class goes, uh, I, I try to theme every class period with a different topic. So for example, one would be Asian American representation. And we would talk about, you know, uh, the history of that. Like, why are there so few Asians in the media? And it's like this whole long history of like whitewashing and stuff like that. So it doesn't just have to be about animation then? Um, no, animation and entertainment or just like film in general. But we, I definitely try to focus more on animation when I can. So do you think teaching this class is also something that made you dig in and think more about culture and, and all the other things that you've been thinking about lately as far as colonization and whitewashing and things like that? Oh, 100%. Um, the th I know this sounds so cliche, but every semester, my students really do teach me something. I learn from them just as much as, well, I don't know if they learn anything from me. <laughs> I kind of see, like, I view myself more as a presenter of ideas. I just offer the information and then we all have a discussion about it. Um, and I learn something new from them every time. And I think that's so cool. It's just like a it's like a living class where it's evolving every semester and I'm, I'm really loving it. So you find that a lot of people younger than you are giving you insight that you might not have had at their age. Yes, absolutely. You know, you think about, I don't know how old you are, but when I was growing up, let's say there's an overlap between our ages. You know, if you're reading Teen Vogue, it wasn't talking about the political stuff it's talking about now, right? So they're growing up informed by different media. Yeah. And I think that's really cool. I think that now we're understanding that, hey, we don't need to protect kids and teens from real issues. They can handle it. You just have to present it in a way that's not going to overwhelm them or whatever. Like I, they can deal with it. Yeah. I mean, little kids were listening to your previous show. So <laughs> yeah, if I have learned anything in the past like five years, it's that I don't know what is okay for children anymore. <laughs> <laughs> now, you mentioned that your life doesn't revolve around scary stories all the time. So mm -hmm. when you're at home and you're just trying to chill out, what types of things are you normally watching? What types of stories are you drawn to? I actually watch a lot of comedy, a lot of stand-up comedy, um, mainly because I consume a lot of the content that I do while I'm working. And I want something that's not going to require my full attention. And to me, I, this is so bad. I have, my husband makes fun of me for this all the time because I have a rotation of three shows that I always watch. <laughs> right now I'm going through my 30 Rock phase, but I, I rotate between watching 30 Rock, Parks and Recreation, and The Office. <laughs> And, like I just put it on like kind of is just like a it's just like a comforting background ambiance noise to me like some people put on music I put on a show that I've seen like a million times um, and he hates it but I'm like oh it's just it's comforting but I'm also part of it is me um, like learning how they structure the TV show like I also eventually you know one day I would love to make a TV show so I'm just kind of like okay how do they break it down and stuff like that um, I noticed that once I started doing paranormal content and horror content for a living, I started consuming a lot less. They say never make your passion your job because then <laughs> you don't have your passion anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and that definitely happened <laughs> to me. A lot of people in film and TV, they get really stressed out because when they were growing up, what did they use when they were stressing out? 
how did they escape? They went to watch movies, right? Or they mm-hmm. would write a short story or something like that. But now those things are work. Then they have no more outlet to these stress. Yeah. Or you find a new one, <laughs> which I think is really cool. Yeah. If they find a new one. Yeah. Because <laughs> sometimes people don't realize they lost something too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think it's just a matter of refinding it. Like you lose it for a while, but then you find it again. Like I think that I'm, I am finding re oh, what's the word I'm looking for? I think I am rediscovering my passion for scary stuff again. Like there was a period like after I quit in October where I was like, I don't want to hear about ghosts. I don't want to see another fucking scary movie. I just need to like not think about any of this. And now I'm like, okay, give it to me. <laughs> Then it makes sense because uh, your new show, it has seasons, right? So it has mm-hmm. like kind of a scheduled break. Yes. Where you don't burn out. Oh, my God. So I I intentionally am doing that this time because my last show did not have season breaks. It was just like forever. And I don't operate that way. So my I come from the animation industry and everything's project based. So you spend months working on this one thing and then usually you have a hiatus and then you start at another thing. That's typically how it goes. And I'm used to that. And I like that because you can work on making this thing really polished and really good. And you send it out into the world and then you move on. Whereas when I was doing the weekly podcast, I it was like I, I, there was no break every single week. Got to come up with new ways to spook the children. And I was like, <laughs> I need a break. Okay. <laughs> so for listeners who are potential show creators or who want to make their own content, maybe that's something they should consider is yes. the benefits of having seasons. Because maybe, especially for your workload and mental health, you might need hiatuses. Oh, absolutely. Um, it's 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 draining in such a different way. Like it's not physically exhausting, but it's mentally exhausting. Um, and when so, if you are thinking of creating a show, you know they see that's the, that's the problem. Or I don't know problem, but like that's one of the issues where with content creation now is that the more frequently and the more often that you post things and you have, you know, the more you're in front of people's eyeballs, the more the algorithms will favor you. And it's like, we don't encourage people to take it slow, (laughs) take it easy or go at your own pace. It's very like fast, fast, fast. Got (laughs) to put it all out there and all the time. And that's why people are burning out. So if you are going to start creating anything, think about what you're limits are how you work as a person because for them I'm assuming that you're going to be doing a lot of it on your own as most people do in this space so understand what you're capable of and make sure that you don't push yourself so far that you burn out after like four episodes I always think about this one commercial I normally don't like commercials but the visual imagery really stuck with me it was a Dr. Dre commercial Mm -hmm. where he was like selling some kind of soda right (laughs) he's at this club and it's like super fast EDM People are just moving so frenetically, so quickly, and it's like. And he comes in and he puts the soda on there, and then the music all of a sudden slows down to like. Slower is better. Trust me. His whole message was like, just chill out. When you're having fun, fun shouldn't be work. Just relax. (laughs) Take it easy. Yeah. Chilling out is going to be for the rest of your life. You don't have to try to get it all out and done tonight. I think I remember that commercial. (laughs) I think it was especially good because at the time, it was so much about this emergence of the hustle culture. There was so much Mm. self-help YouTubers and self-help books, and everybody thought they had to be super productive and Everybody was reading Gary Vee and Tim Ferriss, and we were just like watching TED Talks, and we all had to be billionaires <laughs> by the time we were 30. Mm-hmm. And then Dr. Dre comes in. It's like, no, 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 slow your roll. Just, just chill. Just chill out. <laughs> yeah. No, actually, I mean, you bring that up in such a perfect time. I mean, if you look at our situation right now with the pandemic, like I, I read this poem by someone named Emma Zach. She posted this on Instagram, and she was basically saying like, you know, it's if you don't do anything that productive in this time, like that's okay. Like think of this as a time to just be and remember what it's like to create for the sake of creating, not creating for the sake of, you know, capitalism, basically. (laughs) It's almost like we work for the machine, right? We're working for the algorithm. Mm -hmm. We're not programming the algorithm anymore. It's programming us. It's telling us we have to release an episode every (laughs) three days. Mm-hmm. But like, well, no, we don't have to. 
And I think this can be a reminder, right? But a lot of people right now, maybe they're on the other side of it, but initially we're struggling with that anxiety where every day they had to be productive, right? Mm-hmm. So I know you started out with animation that was drawing and visual storytelling. That was your first love. So what are some of your favorite animations or animes? Um, I actually don't watch a lot of anime. I, I watched Sailor Moon when I was a kid and that was about it. <laughs> um, and you know what? This, uh, to go back to colonial mentality, I remember when I was in high school, I made an active decision to not be super Asian and not mm. feel like not be a stereotype. And part of that was not liking anime. So I look back and I don't know if I was... I really just didn't like it or I was just so actively trying not to be a stereotype that I pushed away this thing. So I it's not that I'm opposed to anime, it's just I haven't seen a lot of it. And I was so turned off by it as a kid. Now I'm like, okay, maybe I'll give it a shot now. But um uh let's see. Well, my all-time favorite cartoon is Daria. Uh just because I I I it actually inspired my art style in a lot of ways. Like I draw eyes that way. I draw mouths that uh, way. Yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> it really influenced me. Yeah, now I see it. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I, I just think I'm a combination of Daria and Jane too. So it's just like my favorite. Um, and what else do I... Yeah, I guess Sailor Moon and Daria were my most influential animations. Because Sailor Moon was the reason I started drawing, I think. Me and my sister would just draw the characters every single day. <laughs> what about graphic novels? Did you ever get into that? No, I didn't. That totally went over my, that, yeah, that just passed me. <laughs> <laughs> so you weren't just trying to avoid the stereotype of the Asian. You were even trying to avoid the stereotype of being a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, maybe, uh, even though I was a fucking nerd. So I don't know, that wasn't successful. <laughs> So I know you've worked on a lot of projects, some of which we've spoken about, and I'm assuming people have asked you, you know, before about what they need to do to have a successful show, but that's like asking for lotto numbers, right? You know, you don't know. So yeah. <laughs> let me ask you this instead. What are things people shouldn't do when creating their own YouTube show or podcast or their own independent content? All right. So I highly recommend that you have interests outside of your passion. So don't only consume the thing that you yourself are trying to create. So if you want to make an animated TV show and all you watch are other animated TV shows, your work is going to feel so derivative. Your work is going to just be another, it's just going to be the same. And but if you have passions outside of that, and that could be anything, like it could still be tangential to animation. So like fine art, photography, uh, cinematography or sculpture, whatever, just something that's not exactly what you are trying to do. It will make your work so much more unique and so much more well-rounded and different. And it'll give you a fresh perspective as opposed to just regurgitating what you already know and what already exists. Because to me, and I'll use this as an example. My biggest pet peeve is when specifically YouTubers, um, like, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but I feel like, uh, I don't know if this is the way it is now, but I know that back when like uh, YouTube vloggers were really big, like, I don't think that's a thing now, but um, when they were really big, there was something in common with all of them. They all, hey, talk really loud. And we're all like done. And we're like fast cuts and stuff like that. Right. Yeah, that yeah, became yeah. the YouTube style. And so people saw that and they saw that it was successful. And so people copied that instead of just being what being that like what works for them. And it kills me whenever I see people doing videos or making podcasts where they're just doing something because they think that that's the way it's supposed to do. Like, I'm a YouTuber, so I'm supposed to talk like this. Like, no, just talk normally. <laughs> like, talk like you, man. Like, it's something that really fucking bothers me. I cannot stand it. And then the thing that also kills me is knowing that those are the people that become the most successful. So I'm like, hey, maybe it I don't know, but like I refuse to do it. 
<laughs> it's like telling a scary story, trying to use that spooky voice, right? Just talk yeah, like yourself. Just talk like yourself. And that honestly, like, I think that's what people were drawn to with my show is that like, I wasn't doing fast cuts. I would let the show breathe. Like you don't really see that that often on YouTube. And so people are like, oh, like YouTube can be like this, you know? So it's like, just do what you like. I always say that you should be your biggest fan. Don't worry about the other people, because if you yourself aren't loving what you're making, you're just making it because you think it's going to be big. You think it's going to go viral, whatever. If you don't fully 100 percent love it, then who the fuck is it for? You know, Mm. (laughs) so that's a good point. So two takeaways I got from this is that you need other interests Mm -hmm. to inform your main interest. Right. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're just copying. You need a perspective. Whatever your message is, it needs to be informed by other things, right? Yeah. And then the other thing that you mentioned about YouTubers in particular, (laughs) the stereotype, I hate that also. (laughs) And it still exists. Oh, okay. They don't call themselves vloggers anymore. They call themselves like social commentary people, you know? Wow, really? But that's why there's so much infighting amongst these people. They always are fighting and then they take it to Twitter and all this stuff because all they do is watch YouTube. Mm-hmm. So they watch each other. And now their social commentary isn't even about society. It's about each other. So they'll do a video about another YouTuber. And that person does a video about another YouTuber. Yeah, I don't even think it's a culture that wants to cancel. It's just because of the way it's designed to self-cannibalize mm-hmm. because people don't have any other interests. And all they do is make videos commentating about other videos. So of course, They're just going to criticize each other because that's what the nature of that format is, right? Oh, God. Yeah. It's like this weird like wormhole that you get like sucked into. Oh, that's creepy. Yeah. It's this weird feedback loop. Yeah. Let's. Yeah. Don't do that. (laughs) Don't do that. And not only that, it's very like what the kids say. Hashtag basic is very cliche, Mm, right? mm -hmm. Don't do that, kids. What the kids say. I always have to say it because when I just say basic, they think it means like fundamental. And I'm like, that's not the basic I'm talking about, right? I'm talking about the stereotypical, you know, like like if I were to do a caricature of what something is going to be, basic would be that caricature, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for coming on the show, Sapphire. Oh, my God. Thank you so much for having me. This is fun. Yeah, this was a nice little escape because as odd as it is to talk about scary stuff and, you know, get creeped out, it's a nice escape from the pandemic right now. So yeah, <laughs> I very much enjoyed that. So for people who are on the interwebs, for the kids out there, where can they find you? <laughs> um, you can find me on social media. Uh, I am on Instagram and Twitter at Awkward Sapphire and Sapphire is spelled with two P's. And I am on YouTube and Twitch. My name is Sapphire Sandalo, so just my full name. And then you can find Stories with Sapphire on any major podcasting app, and it's also up on my YouTube. All right. I'll put all of that on the show notes. And even that one episode that you were talking about, I'll also link to that as well. Oh, yes. All right. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Now that's the show. If you enjoyed this episode and find this type of independent media worthwhile, please consider supporting the show on Patreon. We have a lot more episodes like this one in the works, but need your financial support to keep the show running. Even a few dollars a month goes a long way. No one does what we do, and it's all being funded by you, the listener. In return for supporting us, you'll gain access to lots of bonus content and along with our private Discord chat. Even if you can't support us, there's a lot of free bonus content there as well. We also have an online store if you want to show your Southpaw solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. And if you can't afford to support the show and still want to help, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. This makes it easier for others to find us. And don't forget to share your favorite episodes or the podcast itself on social media. Tell your friends. Until next time, goodbye.